This is Bumping Into, where we have interesting conversations with people from all walks of life. Welcome to Bumping Into. I am Francis Populin. Anyone that's interested in history will love today's episode. I'm joined by Professor Peter Fritzsche, who is not only a professor of history at the University of Illinois, but also the author of a new book called Hitler's First 100 Days. If you're anything like me, you would have wondered how was Hitler able to do what he did, how did he get into power, and how did he keep doing the things that he did all throughout World War II? All is answered in this episode. We start out at World War I, we move into Hitler being elected into power, and then right through to World War Two and after the war. It's a long conversation. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to Peter. Towards the end, we discussed the lines of similarity with many of today's world events, which some of you may find interesting. Um, after that, Peter starts talking about life in America and their political system offering a bit of an insight into, I suppose, how it is all unfolding over there post-Trump. Um, if anyone you know wants to hang around after that, it was a great wide-ranging and engaging conversation with Peter, and I encourage anyone interested in World War II or Hitler uh, or wants to know more about how Hitler came into power to grab a copy of his book called Hitler's First 100 Days. Hi, Peter. How are you going? Hi, how are you? I'm really good. I was just uh, finishing up uh, preparing for dinner. Yeah, you're, you're waiting for your breakfast. I uh, understand that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was up bright and early. I've already been for a walk and got all that out of the way and come back. So, yeah, no, it worked out well. So thank you very much for making the time to, um, to, to hang back and, and do this in your Friday afternoon. Oh, my pleasure. Um, I wanted to, um, I suppose, to, and, and, and look, this is probably what I was thinking, is we create... A broad timeline to sort of, I suppose, uh, understand how your book and what we're going to talk about fits in. So I've I've made a few notes and um, pull me up if any of this is wrong. So if we were to, I suppose, summary this, we, we've got World War One, which was 1914 to 1918. We then had the Spanish flu, which was 1918 to 1920. We then went through the Roaring Twenties, so 1920 to 29, the Great Depression, 29 to 33. And then we had World War II kick in in 30, 1939 to 45. And then after that, the baby boomer period of 46 to 64. I suppose that, that to me, I sort of wanted to create an overall picture of, I suppose, a bit pre and a bit post because it's quite, they're big events and a lot of cultural changes especially happened after the Second World War. Would that be the, I suppose, the main defining things as you would see? Yeah, I mean, the... the um... This is a period that encompasses uh, precisely the life of uh, my grandparents. Right. Okay. Yep. So, so my grandfather was a World War One veteran, and my grandmother uh, witnessed the reunification of Germany uh, at the other end. So, yeah. So that that's a perfectly fine timeline. <laughs> yeah. Oh, perfect. Perfect. Okay. So now that we've got that, obviously. Um, I suppose you, you're probably the best person to, I wanted to summarise, I guess, if people are going to listen, to give them an understanding, you know, a, a before we get to the 100 days of of, uh, of Hitler there. Um, World War One, which Germany lost, what what was the, the precursor? What was the reasoning behind World War One for them entering or starting? Well, World War One, 
let me just sort of start backwards. After World War One, there the, the biggest common denominator in European politics is pacifism, uh, right and left. Uh, that we can't possibly have another World War One because the next one will be even worse, and will destroy our cities, will destroy our civilization. So what people learned from World War I is completely at odds with how it began, which is a struggle of Serbian nationalism, Serbian national claims on Serbian ethnics in the Austrian Empire, made uh, poignant uh, by the assassination of the uh, Archduke on his visit to Sarajevo on, unluckily, uh, it's the biggest Serbian national holiday uh, commemorating uh, the Turkish victory over the Serbs in 1389. Uh, so June 28, 1914 is when the uh, Archduke comes, but it's a small terrorist group that um, doesn't really have established links to the small Serbian state that exists. And um, through a series of really crazy events, uh, they managed to kill the Archduke and his, uh, and his wife on their state visit to Sarajevo. So two people die, and then the whole thing explodes into this world war in which 12 million soldiers uh, and to some extent civilians um, uh, sacrifice their lives. Um, Serbia, uh, Austria wanted to be tough on Serbia. Russia wanted on Serbia's behalf to be tough on Austria. Um, Germany wanted Austria to remain tough uh, because it felt itself surrounded in Europe. All the countries thought that there was a narrow windows of opportunity in order to establish uh, their national claims. But nobody, nobody believed that this uh, regional problem would result in a long-lasting continental war uh, with British entry, with the expeditionary force, much less, well, Australian, New Zealand, Indian uh, participation, and four years of slaughter. So there's, there's a, World War I is the perfect example of irony, where there is no relationship between the origins and uh, the consequences. Uh, but the origins are that Austria in 1914 cannot countenance, cannot see national liberation movements uh, inside its multinational empire because that would spell the end of the Austrian empire. It cannot have Polish independence movements, Czech independence movements, Croatian, Serbian, um, and therefore, it had to have a hard line against what it believed was Serbian terrorism against the uh, Austrian Empire. And, and that, that's the beginning of the war. But Russia feels it has an interest because the Slavs and the Serbs certainly are uh, they're Slav and they're, they're uh, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox. And so there it begins. Everyone thinks they have a finger in the pie. Uh, but the way the whole thing exploded was was unanticipated and um, uh, was certainly not what people expected. <laughs> but the end result is you take country by country by country, 
Uh, two million dead in Germany, two million wounded and crippled. And with similar proportions, 1.5 million uh, dead in France, 1.5 million wounded, 1.3 million in uh, Great Britain. And the most of the bodies, or just about half of the bodies, are never recovered. They're never recovered. They're sitting, they're sitting, they're still sitting there in northern France and Belgium. Um, and so this is a this is a just a, just a calamity that is very very difficult for Americans to understand. Yeah, yeah. The the enormity of of the consequences, and so the origins and the brutality of the war are just two two totally different things. But by 1918, people emerge. They're not thinking about Serbia. They're not thinking about the Archduke. They're thinking about what. Western civilization can do to itself in terms of technology and killing procedures uh, and never again, never again, that word is used first about World War I, not about the Holocaust. Never again a world war. Anything would be worse. Nothing could be worse than a world war. So that is the that is how people emerge in the in the nineteen uh, early nineteen twenties. And you've got obviously Germany. Um, I mean, what 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 was it that Germany was trying to achieve in, in World War One? What was their main push? Was it invasion, just to conquer more land? Is that the basic? Well, one has to remember when one talks about Germany, one's one's talking about the particular government structure at the time. And so while there's a parliament and the biggest party in the parliament are the socialists, the, the government has no accountability to the parliament. So the, the government is at the Kaiser's, at the emperor's uh, behest, what he wants. And that's the old military and political elites. And they first see the war as defensive uh, because of... Russian mobilization against Germany and Austria, but they very quickly realized that um, any victory, first of all, there's the, the opportunity of victory, then you can um, <clears throat> expand your spheres of int interest. But once the war starts costing so much uh, in men and, and treasure, you have to, you have to, make sure that the victory that you have is so decisive that they, you can pay for the war. And so very quickly, a war that's at first seen as defensive becomes a war of aggression and uh, an offensive war with, with sliding but increasingly uh, ambitious war aims in which Germany really would stake its spheres of influence in Eastern Europe. And that's what one sees after the Russian Revolution in the uh, makeshift peace uh, that the Germans uh, forced the Russians to sign uh, in January 1918, where there's this huge ring of uh, German client states, Ukraine, uh, Duchy of Poland, and so on, um, and, and much of the old Russian empire has been gobbled up by, by, by that belt. Uh, so it becomes a very quickly an aggressive, an aggressive war. 
which is which registers the huge stakes of treasure and, and lives. Yeah, and, and it's amazing. It's not that long ago. We're not talking about Roman times or, not, or the Vikings. It's just incredible to think this happened not that long ago. No, I mean, the last, you know, World War I veterans have just died a few, a few years ago. And uh, I just heard that a uh, cartoonist for Walt Disney died at the age of 111. Wow. So she was born in 1910 uh, and would have remembered the armistice celebrations in the United States. Mm. Um, so, uh, but it, yeah, it's my grandfather's generation. But there's, um, but in the end, uh, there is a broad, broad consensus for peace and, and for the end of the war uh, in 1918. And the German Revolution is not an unhappy or un unpopular event. And it's the end of militarism. It's the end of the Kaiser. It's the end of the war. It's the end of a healing process in a very difficult moment, which involves a food blockade, coal shortages, and, of course, the influenza epidemic. And so it's only slowly in the 1920s when Germans, and again, not all, uh, but influential ones, uh, start to think about refighting World War I. But that does uh, characterize uh, German politics by the end of the 1920s. So obviously I think that the story is that Hitler was uh, very bitter about Germany's lost and he was obviously keen to, to go back into war, but, you know, and that, I guess, ultimately led to the start of German, the Germany involvement in World War II. Yes, I mean, the war is Hitler's political school. Yeah. Uh, and he serves for four years, a long four years, and he is uh, in a dangerous position as a messenger between units. He wins the, earns the Iron Cross once at the beginning, once at the end of the war. And then he, he returns to uh, Munich and the, the, the revolution uh, takes ever more radical forms. And so for him, in his mind, Germany's defeat at the hands of the Allies is completely entangled in his resentments of the enemies at home who have weakened Germany to the point of creating and then radicalizing this revolution and bringing up the threat of Bolshevism. So he sees Germany in peril, both at home and abroad. And that means you need a tough, 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 preemptive counter-revolutionary policy. Utterly violent and utterly merciless. First against the enemies at home, whom he designates as communists and socialists and Jews. And then, of course, against the European allies that almost destroyed the existence of Germany at the Treaty of Versailles, in his view. Right. And, this, and this extreme way of thinking about uh, Germany's fall and rise is increasingly legitimate and popular, becomes increasingly legitimate and popular. And that's the Nazis' great success by, by the eve of World War II to really convince Germans that this is the story of how we would narrate the last 25 years.
And and I guess that's probably where um, your your book um, comes into play from that point. I guess is is his lead up into into power, convincing the public, and then off off they go to war again. Exactly. The Germany the Germany must Germany can renew itself, uh, and Germany must renew itself. And by renewing itself, it's a sign of its own strength. Now he didn't envision everything from the beginning. It's you know it's a step by step process, but yes, Germany had to come together as a collective whole. Uh, the individual was subordinate to the to the community and to the state and to the ethnicity, and it had to draw strength as a ethnic nation, and had to remilitarize and had to understand that the world is a dangerous place and. Uh, and act accordingly. In his view, though, it wasn't just a case of protecting Germany, but also of making Germany inviolate and Germany um, uh, invulnerable by creating the very continental empires that distinguish Russia, or the Soviet Union, uh, the United States, and the overseas empires of France and uh, Britain. Uh, Germany had far fewer resources, far fewer people uh, than, than, than its uh, other competitors, and it, it had to recreate for itself uh, this sort of empire. And so that was the ultimate aim of his politics. So he came to, basically he came to power, I suppose, and the modern equivalent is he would have, he would have been running as a politician, um, and then he was he came to power. That process that occurred was that based on like a majority votes? Was it the majority of people? It's, actually- it's, it's so interesting because there's just there's two ways to see it. Um, if if you study Germany in the 20th century, or just let's take the first half of the 20th century, the Nazis are the biggest phenomena that you have to explain. They're different. Uh, they're not an old fashioned party. They don't want the Kaiser back. They don't want to go back to pre-1914, but they're anti-socialist, anti-Bolshevik, have huge amounts of resentments, uh, blame Jews for so many things, and they get 40%, basically, in a parliamentary system. This is a huge amount of votes, and they become Germany's largest party in 1932, uh, after the Social Democrats had been Germany's largest party for 40 years. Uh, so they're sitting there at 37%, but let's say 40%. And um, that's, that is huge. They have so much energy. And these, these, the, 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 the supporters are young, to some extent, uniformed and armed. And uh, they are the sons and daughters of the uh, elites of Germany, but they also include workers and farmers, and Catholics, and Protestants. So they are a cross-class party, but they're only 40%. They're not more than 40%. Hitler sees a quarter million people in front of him in his rallies in Berlin, and he thinks he's going to win and win big. And he thinks he has the dynamic and the tide of history behind him. But he cannot break And even in the last elections, the last semi-free elections, only got 43%. And then his coalition partners bought it up to 52. 
So he so so he so so he can't get into power without either the connivance of the elites or violence. It's not going to happen by a parliamentary majority, and uh, and that's the story. Uh, the story of 1932 is the story that he can't get above 40 percent, and the story of 1933 is the story of the connivance of the elites that then put him into power without the necessity of a parliamentary majority, but yet with emergency powers. And two, uh, he will use violence uh, to make sure that he can leverage his 40% or his 52% into total control, including uh, the two-thirds majority that requires that is required for the uh, suspension of the Constitution. And so you have both elites finally agreeing to put him put him into power and then uh, and then his audacious use of violence and that then consolidates his rule which partially through persuasion uh, does appeal to the German people. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> An incredible, I suppose, uh, what, what would you call that? Marketing strategy, um, bamboozling? Or- yeah, it's, exa- <laughs> it's, it's, it's how you see 40%. You know, 40% is a lot to work with. And, uh, and he says at one point, you know, I'm bringing 75% of the capital into these plans to create an authoritarian state and get rid of the republic. I'm bringing in 75%. Now, someone else is going to have to bring in 25%. But, but remember, I'm bringing in the great majority of the resources. I have the votes. I have the people. I have the press. I have the money. Uh, he's a self-supporting party. Uh, but it's only 40%, right? So yeah. it, it, it really depends how, how, how you see it. But in a parliamentary system, as you know well, 40% is a great deal. Yeah, 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 definitely. And that term you used, emergency powers, is quite interesting because that's a term that's been thrown around a lot lately here in Australia with a lot of government decisions that can just get made without any, any discussion, consultation. It's just, oh, it's emergency powers and we can pass this law, that law, this decision, that decision. So obviously even going back to then, there was, there was things that could just happen by emergency powers. Right, and he, he promoted the communist threat, um, and that's why the Reichstag burning on the 27th of February was so important. And, uh, and he, he got temporary emergency powers to suspend basic civil rights at that point and uh, promoted the idea of the communist bogeyman, that there's a communist conspiracy. And many Germans believed that because uh, the Reichstag uh, was indeed on fire. And then was able to uh, uh, get the two-thirds majority uh, after the elections in order to um, basically permanently suspend the Constitution. And these are the this two-thirds. It's interesting how it happened. Uh, he allowed the communists to contest the elections, but then he banned the party after the results were in, which meant that the communist deputies weren't able to take their seats, which means that the number of parliamentarians in the parliamentary session was less, minus the communists, which means your bar for the two-thirds majority is also that much less. And if the socialists voted against 
the suspension of the Constitution, as they did, you could still get the two-thirds if you get the Catholics with you. And that's the great shame uh, of 1933, is the Catholic Party uh, provided the two-thirds majority. And even inside the Catholic faction, there were people who very much objected to it, but the old tradition of factional discipline held, and, uh, uh, and, the, and the Catholics voted for the suspension of the Constitution. So do, do you think that when all this was happening, you look at his um, you know, strategy, marketing campaign, he's now built through emergency powers, he's done this, he's done that, he's now into Parliament, he's shifted the goalpost, he's made his virtually concreted his seat, He's telling people what they want to hear. Do you think at that point in time that anyone had any idea of what was about to come and what he was about to, you know, the the deaths of the Jews and invading the countries? Was there any indication or was that just like, oh, by the way, we're going to do this now that we're in? You know, you, you can find uh, people who, who understood that the Nazis were, were a pretty vulgar, violent, audacious bunch. And Hitler himself said that he was going to suspend the Constitution. And Hitler himself said that heads were going to roll in the sand uh, when he came to power because of the criminal activity surrounding the revolution in 1918. But the burst of violence against individual physical bodies takes place after the election of March 5th. And... Uh, And then things happen very quickly. Within two weeks, you have concentration camps. Uh, You have tens of thousands of people incarcerated. Within three weeks, you have the boycott against Jewish businesses. Within four weeks, you have uh, Jews being purged from the civil service, everybody from a post office employee to a federal judge. So this burst of violence after March 5th uh, is, is, is pretty audacious. And I do think it does catch people by surprise, because by what standard would they be measuring? Yeah. Uh, the socialists had been banned back in the 1880s. People have been arrested for communist activity, but nothing like this. Uh, and, uh, and the idea that, that in seven years, eight years, you're going to be eight years, you're going to be uh, involved in the murder of Jews, not only abroad, but at home, it is it, very difficult to imagine. And yet, at the time, even non-Nazis, let's say, uh, uh, let's say an established conservative newspaper is saying, look, what is the choice? The choice is about the Bolshevik Revolution of 1918, which is painted in lurid colors. There's all sorts of stories about Russia. Or the patriotic gathering of national forces that we see celebrating Hitler on the 30th of January, 1933. No one's talking about law and order. No one's talking about the Constitution. No one's talking about legal order. They're talking about the choices, Bolshevism, or, or this national revolution. So they've already pitched it in a pretty dramatic way. And that drama is just going to unfold. Can anybody predict it? No. But they've already dramatized it. Yes. So, so the answer is no. 
No one could not That's predict all. it. With a small yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, it, it, and tell me if I'm wrong, obviously he had the media either on side or under control because they became the messenger and obviously painting this right. picture. And, 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 and what's so interesting about the media is, is that not only could he project images on the media and the radio. So, for example, the radio constantly broadcast the cheers. First of all, he would interrupt a music program and then say, here we have a rally, Hitler's rally. So it would go from one moment to the next, you know, from Bach to Hitler for, for this, you know, emergency uh, uh, broadcast. And then you'd hear the roars of the crowd. And people believed radio more than newspapers at that time. And so the roars of the crowd seemed to be the roars of the nation. The microphone was just simply broadcasting the voice of the nation. Yeah. So you have these cheers and screams and songs. And so all the images and all the sights and sounds of acclamation, whatever their limits were, act as uh, registers of national acclamation. It seems like everybody is going over and that these rallies really do represent the nation. And this is done time and time and time and time again. And people in and then you see, you're, well, everybody else is rallying. Yeah, yeah. I better rally too. I better yeah. rally too. And by the way, people also wanted to consume national unity. They wanted to consume the end of national fracturing. They didn't want these fights on the street between the communists and the Nazis. They had pictures of the old guy, President Hindenburg, and the new young, the youngest chancellor in German history, uh, Hitler, uh, where Hitler bows to old man Hindenburg. We're, we're, German history has healed itself. People wanted to consume these images. And those who remained cynical and skeptical on the side were increasingly marginalized uh, and self-doubting in themselves. Yeah. And so suddenly it becomes what's, what is an illusion becomes real because people consume the illusion and make it real. And that's that is that's what happens in these hundred days. That that's the most amazing thing. And even if you remain skeptical, you never know whether the Heil Hitler salute is done out of fear, opportunism, or genuine conviction. Isn't, Nobody isn't, knows. That's but better be on the safe side, huh? Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> be on the safe side and go with the majority. Yeah. But, there, but you also have to realize that this 40% of Nazis, there was a huge amount of energy, right? And so they, they are just bursting with acclamation, with joy, with celebration, with ambition, with a plan to, to renew and change and revise Germany, to unshackle the chains of Versailles, uh, to let the voice of the German people be heard finally. Not the Kaiser, uh, but not the Bolsheviks either. And that Germans will come to themselves, will, be, will become themselves. And that, that 40% had just had huge amounts of energy. It was very intoxicating. And it was very, um, uh, very appealing. So it was very easy to pull in uh, more people, even though some socialists, some communists, many communists, and of course, a few Catholics, stayed stayed the course but but most most people didn't and didn't want to 
They wanted to get rid of it. No one thought of going back. Now we have the new Germany. Let, let's make it. And do you think, like, you know, between 41 and 1945, you got 6 million Jews that were murdered, and, and they weren't just, it wasn't like on, a, on a, a battlefield. This is gas chambers, labour camps, mass shootings. You'd sort of think by 19, if that was 41, you'd think by 1942 you'd be going, what the hell is going on? You know, this is, this is not normal. This is not well, It's very important. Uh, the big slogan of the Nazis was Germany awake, Jews perish. Which means that logically German life depended on Jewish death. And that was the Nazi slogan. And I'm not saying that everybody agreed with that, but that was there uh, in 1933. And that legitimizes the violence and so on. And that German... The preservation of German life did require tough, tough measures because we've been through the revolution. We've been through World War I. But nobody voted for the Holocaust. Nobody voted for the murder of their neighbors. And um, when, the, when Germans, now people can excuse it, they can justify it, and they can, and, and of course there are people who, who, who promoted in 1941 but when ordinary Germans heard about the killing in Russia, which begins in, the, begins in August 1941, the rumors spread like wildfire. It took, 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 took 10 days for the uh, news of Bobby Yar to get to German cities, if you were listening. Uh, the news spreads like wildfire. And the, the form of the rumors is really interesting. The form is that uh, victims are forced to undress or partially undress. Uh, they include women and children, and the killers often go mad in an alcohol frenzy. So those are the three parts of the rumors. That means that the rumors are received as horror, and people are very unsettled, I think, by this. Now, they can, again, justify this and, 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 and flatten it out as they do, and you can see that in diaries and letters. And then when the entire German army comes back home for their last vacations in the summer of 1942, you know, there are a lot of discussions about this, but it's, it's resolved. It's explained that this is a war of us and against them, an existential war of existence. But the, the news is received first as horror. But then... As the war goes on, the Germans experience their own horror. You know, they're, they're getting bombed. More and more of their neighbors are getting killed in the battle lines. And uh, they, they think about other things. I mean, the fate of the Jews is far worse. But that's not why you think about things, because the fate of someone else is worse. If, you're, if your city is getting bombed, you think about your city. And so, and so I think the, the horror of it all uh, gets kind of compensated by your own suffering. And then you say war is war, right? The war does these things. Let's hope that the war ends. Let's, let's hope for the war ends. Um, and um, precise news about Auschwitz and gas chambers never arrived in Germany. Oh, okay. Well, look, you know, in 1945, when American and British soldiers liberated the concentration camps into which Jewish uh, 
people had been stuffed in the last months of the war, so Dachau, Bergen-Dels, and Buchenwald, and so on, they were surprised. But we knew about the gas chambers. The BBC had been broadcasting about hundreds and thousands of deaths since since the broadcasts of June 1942. The Polish national government in London had had created a a white paper in December 1942. Um, uh, There were uh, prisoners who escaped from uh, Auschwitz and uh, 1944, with a canister of Zyklon B, uh, and 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 that was reported to the Allied government. Everybody was surprised to see these mountains of corpses and the just the the, the scale, the comprehensive, systematic scaling of this. And you know who else was surprised? Was the survivors were surprised because the survivors in Theresienstadt and elsewhere. They were hoping they would find their family members still. But from one day to the next, they learned that they were all gone. German people were surprised. They knew many things. They suspected, the better way to put it, they suspected many things. They had heard these words. They knew about 1941, but uh, the killing fields in the Soviet Union. But, but everything was an event, you know. It's not pieced together as one big yeah. policy. Yeah. It rolls on and on and takes the Jews from Corfu and Rhodes and Crete and puts them on boats and then on trains and then into... Nobody thought in these terms. Even the Jewish telegraphic agency based in Jerusalem thinks in terms of events and atrocities and not a systematic policy. And um, uh, and so there there is a a, a moment of tremendous uh, revelation in 1945 about the system the systematic nature of this. Even though every fact is known, you walked in the streets of New York in the summer of 1942 and wanted to figure out what's happening, you would find out everything, including the names the exact and precise names of the people who 20 years later would be put on trial in the Auschwitz trials in Frankfurt in the mid-1960s. All of this was available, but you didn't piece it together. You had the facts, but not the knowledge. Why? Because it was unbelievable. To us, it's still unbelievable. I teach courses on the Holocaust all the time. It's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was one of my questions, is how long after this did the German people stop and actually go, oh, well, what have we done? You know, this this is incredible. Well, about, I'd say it took 1968, you know, then the fathers were accused. Wow. You know, student revolts of the 60s, the fathers were accused. And, And Germans understand full well that this is not, only the Nazis, you know, who then become a very small group, you know, yeah. uh, after the war. But this is a, a, a much broader social situation and that uh, many, many Germans are complicit in all sorts of ways through knowledge, through help, through giving coffee to soldiers at the train stations, through taking photographs or whatever. Every photograph we have of the Holocaust is a is a, a German snap. Why do we have photographs of Jews being killed? These are commemorative photographs. Have gone further than any other 
nation in the world in understanding this. And it's a very difficult knowledge to have. You know, 16-year-olds don't want to go to the beach in Italy and be thought of as Germans. They want to be thought of as boys and girls. Uh, but um, that, that's just the way it is. Uh, and so it's both. It's, it's, a, it's a knowledge that is difficult to handle. And the difficulty of handling it has to be part of the knowledge. And I think that the Germans have done this quite well compared to the United States or Australia. Okay. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's stick, stick with the United States. Yeah. <laughs> no, we can throw them both in the mix. That's okay. <laughs> um, but but before we go down that path, is is um, what was Hitler's problem with the Jews? How what was was there one summary? Was it I don't like them because what was this underlying hatred that he just had? How do you define that? Actually, I don't think he had a hatred. Or hatred doesn't even begin to encompass it. He thought in modern, biological, social Darwinist terms, in which there are biological entities that are given worthiness and unworthiness. And for him, the Jews were alien, dangerous, and here comes in his psychosis, uh, a lethal, imminent lethal threat and needed to be segregated out as fast as possible. So the old Christian view of Jews that they don't assimilate is the opposite of Hitler's. The, 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 the great fear would be that they do oh, they would arrive. assimilate and go into the yeah. biological body. And so for him, it was just a scientific hygienic separation. But, uh, of course, I mean, the hate, what you say, the obsession is uh, that, uh, that it's the Jews and that this has to be done immediately. But the first victims of biological cleansing in Germany were Aryans. It's not known very well, but 400,000 Germans were sterilized uh, between 1933 and 1939. And 400,000 others were threatened with sterilization but managed to appeal or, you know, just delay the procedure or then came to war. So we're talking about 800,000 people plus their families who know about this in a country of 65 million. We're talking about more than 1% of the population. And, um, but 400,000 people are sterilized. Aryans, Aryans. And the only, actually, it's very interesting, you know, the, this, is, this isn't very well known. But in Judgment at Nuremberg, it's the figure of Montgomery Cliff, the somewhat simple peasant, at the trial who testifies about his sterilization. The 1960-whatever movie uh, with Spencer Tracy and so on. Uh, this is one of the only and first and only uh, mass media representations of this. So, so they're going all along the line. You know, they, they want a biologically healthy entity that will survive the rigors of the 20th century. Yeah, that's incredible to think. And he was, yeah, he, he had just segregated one, one whole uh, race there of, of just saying, 
well, you're inferior to my view, and and that's it. This is this is a final decision. Right. I mean, there are little courts that would decide that, and you could appeal, and you know, but but. Um, and, you know, my, most of these people were simple and some of these people were prim- perhaps criminal. And in any case, they, they, they were, they could, they could be visualized as of the lower orders, but, um, but, but often uh, they weren't. But 400,000 is a huge number. Yeah. And if you think of the 400,000 also threatened, and then you think just multiply it by three or four with the number of family members who must be involved in these uh, situations, and this is anything, it's mostly depression, schizophrenia, uh, but it could be hereditary deafness, uh, it could be uh, promiscuity, alcoholism, all sorts of things. And you, you touched on how Germany you know, dealt with moving forward and the repair after, um, and you, in comparison to, I suppose, the Australian-American way. What What is that view that... You know, what, what do you think they did do as opposed to what others didn't do? Well, they had the greatest Keynesian project of all time, which was a rearmament program and ended the scourge of long-term unemployment in Germany, creating the idea of the good old days, sort of rep- represented by the Berlin Olympics, of peace and prosperity. And people began to resent Hitler for threatening that peace and prosperity, you know, with his endless wars. They didn't want to lose the war, but they sure as hell wanted peace. Yeah, they didn't want to be fighting. They didn't want to lose. Yeah. But they didn't want to lose. Yeah. And that's fair enough. Yeah. I mean, and that, yeah. yeah, but that also goes back to 1918 uh, when, when, when Hitler had, you know, basically convinced, but they had convinced themselves that Germany had been basically at the point of extinction then. And so it can't possibly be at the point of extinction now. So they still thought in the virtue of the collective versus the sanctity of the individual until the very end. It's interesting because, um, if you look at the, you know, Australia and Japan obviously were at war during World War II and there was that thing that the Japanese were, you know, extremely violent and, and aggressive and, you know, ruthless. Um, and for a long time, I suppose, the older generation, it, it had a dislike to, to the Japanese where now anyone that's, you know, 50 and, and younger, um, the Japanese are are the friendliest, most welcoming, kind people. There's a lot of them here that, you know, you do not have, a younger person has no association whatsoever about what actually happened back then. They're very kind people now. It's so interesting, Francis, and I don't even know of a book that discusses this. The the view that we have, even towards the Germans uh, and the Japanese, uh, changing between 1945, say, and 1955, and then the Japanese get the Olympics in 64 that they self-canceled in 1940, um, changes so rapidly with, with a degree of depth that one really has to, uh, maybe human beings are generous in a certain way. I mean, the Holocaust is not going to be forgotten. Mm. Uh, but... Um, one does deal with Germans and Japanese. And um, it's interesting with Japan that um, their, their treatment of uh, American and British um, and Dominion um, 
prisoners of war was was cruel, uh, extraordinarily so. Uh, and yet um, the Japanese didn't start sterilizing themselves, right? Yeah. They didn't start segregating themselves. Uh, in 1942, there were elections in Japan. Um, there's always discernible factions, you know, between the Navy and the Army, um, between civilian and military, uh, within the Navy. Um, Yamamoto himself, who planned Pearl Harbor, was against the declaration of war against the United States. So you see a, a variety of, uh, of factions, but nonetheless, there's this extreme, there's a sense of racial superiority and, uh, and, and extreme gratuitous violence uh, against uh, particularly the Chinese population and allied prisoners of war. Mm. Well, what and then you, it's forgiven. And then it's forgiven. Yeah. And that's, it, it is, yeah, I, I had a neighbour once, um, I think he was maybe Yugoslav, um, and he, he used to say, um, uh, you know, about racial tensions, you know, every country's got them with their Indigenous and whatever, and he used to talk about the, the World War, you know, time, and he used to say, you know, at some point, Everyone has to move forward. At some point, no matter how bad it was, we have right, to right because forward. that's what happened in World War One. The yeah. Germans didn't move forward. Yeah. But the other thing, Francis, what do you think? Do you think that Hiroshima is such a mind-blowing event, frame-blowing event that we realize that that that, that something was overstepped mm. or? something now has to change in our conventional behavior. I mean, maybe the, 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 the vast destruction of German cities, I mean, the biggest death moment in World War II is actually the March raid on Tokyo, not Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But, uh, but that, that, in a way, does change the way we require ourselves to talk to each other what what do you think it would have looked like had Germany not been stopped if they had if they had won and had you know England had surrendered? What what do you think Europe would look like now? Well, I can't recommend enough the novel by uh, Robert Harris called Fatherland, uh, which has uh, JFK's father trying to do detente with an aged Hitler in the early nineteen sixties, when the sounds of the Beatles are beginning to make it to Nazi Hamburg. And the hair is growing over the collar <laughs> of the young students. And yet Germany is fighting an endless war in Russia. But the Nazis uh, were characterized by a utter ruthlessness, unqualified by Christian morality. I mean, of course, that sometimes bubbled up, but um, they created slave hierarchy in Europe in the mid-19, in the mid-20th century, it would have been a, a disaster. Very, it would have, if they had, if they had enough resources, it would have been very difficult to, to, to confront them. And, and anybody in their occupation would have been, it would have been a stultifying living death. It would have been terrible. The, the, the Jews would have been Massacred. Well, they were. 75% of Europe's Jews were massacred. The Nazis won that battle. Um, they had a slave labor system. There was no education in Poland. Um, there was, it's not just brutal, but arbitrary violence. 
but the whole thing was so destructive that it became self-destructive. In the end, I, I don't think it, I don't think there would have been a resting point. And if there's no resting point, then at a certain point, the process of destruction would have um, become self-destructive, as, as we do see in the years 1941-45. But it would have been an absolute disaster. My, my, my mother, my father would have been uh, trapped there. And they wouldn't, my father probably wouldn't have known he was trapped. Uh, my mother probably would have. One, one other thing I want to do with you is the lines of similarities because it, it is highly evident when you, with everything we've spoken about, you know, they're saying that if, uh, if you don't understand history, you'll keep repeating it. Um, and there's incredible lines of similarities, you know. I, I found one quote uh, a while ago and I couldn't find it again, but it was something along the lines of, um, you know, people referring to, I'll, I'll give away some of my freedoms as long as I can have them back later said by a person that never read anything about history. You know, little things like that all all sort of, even another one, uh, in a world of propaganda, the truth is a conspiracy. And you sort of go, all of these, these things that were spoken about that happened back then, tactics, marketing strategy, political powers and string pulling and uh, the media, they all, all resurface. And it's amazing how it's, it becomes fresh again to the, to the masses. My best example is the notion that every question has two sides. Yeah. Why? Well, why is that? Um, that that's, they're not two sides to every question. That suggests that, you know, the, the, the truth is sort of the middle. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, then, and then there's these two sides. And then they have to be reconciled. I mean, on certain questions, there are, there are not two sides. I'm sorry. There's, there's, there's not two sides, uh, whether, whether we're talking about slavery or whether we're talking about um, gratuitous violence or we're talking about the Holocaust. There are not two sides. And the idea that in a political situation, when we talk about the two sides, that we should weight them evenly in the discussion. Let me just take, pull out my hand. That the Democrats have been as extreme as the Republicans, is demonstrably not so. Uh, 75, 75% of the movement away from previous positions has been Republican movement to the right and not Democrat, Democratic movement to the left. And, but but we, we content ourselves with very simplistic, even almost pre-political um, concepts like every question has two sides. And that's where it starts. Yeah. yeah, but the the situation that we're in is this: the world began with movement. We are all ancestors of Lucy, two hundred thousand years ago in Africa, and um, and and humans have moved around, and the species has extended itself. And has been characterized in the last, you know, 100,000 years by movement and expansion into areas where previously there were no humans. And even thereafter, there were waves of migration. Are we going to simulate that for the future with climate change, civil war, and so on? It would be, uh, in some ways, correct and nice. 
But we're dealing with also real political units called nation states uh, and, um, and, and societies that have expectations that think in territorial terms. And this is the big, this is the big challenge for the species is uh, our origins lie in common movements, even though we were violent among each other. Uh, and yet uh, we're trapped right now in uh, territorial nation states, which are not terrible. They've done lots of good things, uh, but they're ill-designed uh, to get people thinking about the challenges of the future. So what are we going to do? Um, and, and, the, and the friction results in mistrust and racism and... Um, Biden is not so different than Trump in the end and the consequences when you're a migrant. People, people are not doing well and they can't take care of their families. They're, they're going to move. Yeah. But you can also understand why Germany can't accept 8 million refugees, right? So uh, this, this, is, this, is, this is the big discussion. Uh, and in the meantime, one of the ways this friction works itself out is a, a redefinition of belonging and entitlement in terms of the ethnic nation. And that's then represented by the populists beginning in the soft side with Brexit and in a, in a, in a much harder way with, with Trump and, and Oregon. With, with, I noticed with our political system, um, you know, we've got the two major parties. And then you can have your independence, but essentially only one one of those two parties can be prime minister. Um, and you know everyone has sort of seen them be, uh, you know, there used to be um, a very much, you know, this we're camped over here, we're camped over here. We stand for business, we stand for the worker. We do this, we do that. Now there's this homogenization of uh, every pleasing everything, pleasing everyone, and there's no, I suppose, you know, I mean, they might, they have a different banner and use different colours, but ultimately at the end of the day, they're very similar. And if there's a law that needs to be passed that benefits one and it will benefit the other later, they do. Is that similar yeah. to what you see? No, no. You see, that's the European view. And uh, it's true, perhaps, for the Australian parties and it's true, perhaps, for uh, the German parties. But in America, there's a real partisan divide. Right. So you've got that big push And pull. it aligns itself so that now every issue is snugly set on one side or the other. So it's, there's not cross issues. You know, yeah. I believe in abortion, but don't believe in tax hikes or something like that. Yeah. The, 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 the partisan sides are just completely aligned. And then there's a racial tinge to it all, or more than a racial tinge. The American polity is, 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 has been divided more than today only once. Oh, okay. And that was in the 1850s. But that was territorial. And here, here it goes everywhere. It goes through my community, goes, goes through everywhere. Um. But in terms of Australia, there was an article in the New York Times yesterday that said, is uh, Australia becoming a dictatorship? 
Yeah. <laughs> because there's all these pictures of yeah. anti-COVID or anti-vaccine, anti-COVID. We're all anti-COVID, <laughs> anti-vaccine uh, protesters. I've had COVID. Yeah. I'll tell you, it's no fun. Wow. After vaccination. Uh, and uh, the writer reminded his American readers that Australia, Australia has had elections or by-elections, has free speech, and national free healthcare, mm. in which 1,500 people have died, which is 120th the number of the people in the state of Florida with the same population as Australia. So what we're, we're, we're dealing with a situation where we do not, I pay probably $10,000 out of pocket in health. I pay, uh, my five-year-old is now in kindergarten, but last year he wasn't. I pay $10,000 for uh, um, child care. And um, we're, we're dealing with the only developed country in the world that has no national health insurance. Yeah. So sure, Australians can get mad or not so mad or this or that. But basic things are set, and you do not have fifteen hundred people. You only have fifteen hundred people dead. I I I know people who have died of COVID. America is a deeply divided, deeply troubled country, and the the uh, and then it's then it is packed into race. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm I'm afraid to say so, but it is. And there's no easy way out, is there? There's no. It's well, it's all constructed, right? Yeah. I mean, it's all totally unnecessary, but constructions can be super, super strong. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, and it's interesting, the role, I mean, you know, you mentioned the, the protests that we had here, and one thing looking at what's happened is the, the media has, media and government have created this huge divide amongst the, the forced vaccine. So there's a lot of mandatory vaccine. If you, if you, it started with hospitals and it's now spreading into every everything, retail, banks, shopping centres, and the instead of saying, well, we've got a portion that is uh, they've, they've had all their other vaccines, they're just worried about this one, it's no, you're anti-vax and you're them versus us and we're going to get everybody angry and we're going to throw it out and fight amongst yourselves, you guys fight it out, where typically the government was like, well, if we identify an issue here or a tension here, we put things in schools that make kids understand that it is okay to be gay or it is okay to do this. But on this occasion, it's like, no, 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 we're going to let you guys fight this out and we're going to call them an anti-vaxxer and we're going to call you pro-vaxxer and come and see who's standing at the end. And that's very much how it sort of seems at the moment, this this method that they've used and the media is just throwing petrol and petrol on this fire. I'm a big left-wing civil libertarian. I've absolutely no problem with government mandates on this issue. And uh, my wife is sort of Catholic and uh, uh, is vaccinated, but is really worried that the government comes up with these passports and Mm. division systems and tiered citizenships. And I mean, I get Mm. it theoretically, but it doesn't bother me. Mm. I I think that the big gripe is the whole, um, the other ones I have been mandatory for schools and daycares here for a long time. Um, and obviously they've been around a long time, I think it's that whole, well, if you can force us to do that, what else can you force us to do that we don't have a, 
a say on in a, essentially a free democratic country. You know, the, the, the mandates of the federal government uh, don't, don't seem to be so overriding in the United States. I mean, okay. uh, there's a lot of collective responsibility. The article about Australia mentioned, you know, where we're constantly on the verge of disaster with fire, with insects, with <laughs> animals and disease. And we must think collectively rather than, than individually. And the, 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 there are not a lot of collective mandates in the United States. Um, you need a driver's license to drive a car. You don't have anything to carry a gun. Yeah, that is that is bizarre, isn't it? And, um, and, and, and there are other collective responsibilities that we have to, to, to our aged population, which is only going to grow, uh, to those with less opportunity. It's not a handout, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's establishing certain foundations. In America, there was a point when high school was not free, then it became free. Uh-huh. Why shouldn't college become free? I mean, it's the same, same, same problem. I mean, maybe we decided that college shouldn't be free, but high school became free, and once it wasn't, wow. it was okay. not only not free, it wasn't mandated. Wow. But then it became a mandate. Everybody has to go to high school. Everybody has to go to public school, and it's going to be free. And we're, we're going to actually take the children out of family homes and put them into public buildings with public servants. <laughs> That's a lot of government control right there. Mm, yeah, yeah. But we don't think about it in those terms. Mm, and, uh, and the human species has not prospered because human beings are so adaptable by themselves. They're adaptable in groups. Yeah. And actually, it's altruism and not greed, which distinguishes cooperation and thus the success of the species, which is now so successful that it's threatening the entire planet. So um, I think the Americans have a lot of freedom and we, we can talk and rant and rave. And um, I, I just don't see that. You know, being like the, uh, the the Republicans and the Democrats you have over there, do you ever ever look at, like, if you're on one side of the fence, has there ever been, like, for example, in Australia we have Labor and Liberal and you will get people that no matter what, that's my brand, I'll only drive a Ford, that's it. it but then you'll get a lot of other people that say, well, you know, at the time this, this guy running in the Labor Party was quite good and there'll be a shift regardless does, is that a or is it very brand division no matter what it used, to be, it used to be much more in america and um and and local elections were different from state which were different from federal uh and to some extent that's probably still true but what's happened in america is that there's been a uh, alignment of local state federal and then party and so the crossover is much, much less frequent. And therefore, the predictor of elections is the primary in which the party decides who's going to run rather than the election in which you decide between the parties. Right. And that has become a trend that is, 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 is much, much, much stronger. The other question you're asking is, do I know Republicans and do I speak to them? 
And the answer is yes. But it is very surprising uh, the number of Republicans who believe that Biden didn't win the election. Oh, okay. So that's still still a big ticket item. It's more than half. Wow. And um, uh, and, and, and this is not an issue like do we believe in uh, this tax rate or not. But this is a fundamental issue of how do you see reality, and how do you how do you see the country. And also, all of this is totally distorted by the uh, inability to see the fact that in the national vote, six and a half million voters voted more for one candidate than the other. That's not in dispute. So they're playing the electoral college game and are basically internalizing the unfairness or the whatever we call it, whatever adjective you want to use. Of, of the fact that the states and not the national voters determine everything. Uh, but they're already playing that game when they say that the, the, the vote is a lie. But, but nobody disputes that, that Biden won by six and a half million votes, 52 to 48 percent. It's not a landslide, but it's, it's decisive. And um, I, 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 I'm just, I'm just I'm totally astonished. I, it's, it's difficult to approach a Republican in a joking way. Uh, if if these things are are, are so believed, and um, 2016 will be studied for many many years, talked about propaganda. You know, all politicians are equally corrupt. That that that's that, that, I don't think that's true. Some are much much more corrupt, than <laughs> yeah. and some are more disinterested in, in the in the country than others. You know, I'm not a Biden fan, but. Um, by any means, uh, but the 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 uh, distance between him and Trump is like enormous. Yeah, yeah, it would be, and, yeah. and it's not just a quant- quantity thing; it's a it's a level thing. And I mean, one thing thinks he's thinks he's a president, another thinks he's a hustler. You know, <laughs> very different. Yeah. Well, if if not for anything, it's exciting times we live in. It is actually it's very, very different. Uh, 2016 was an extremely big surprise. And, um, and you can add in Brexit there. Yeah, and, I was going to um, say that too. That was unexpected as well. Yeah. But we, what we see underlined is our incapacity to politically solve problems combined with the urgency mm. to do so. Because, because climate change is here. And you know it in Australia better than I do in Illinois. But um, we, we have to solve that problem. And in America, we also have to solve the problem of inequality in this, this healthcare crisis. Look, I, I am super grateful of your time. Um, I know it's getting late there over there now. It's definitely dinner time for you. Um, so I don't want to keep you too much longer and I could talk to you all day. So I, I'm, I'm really, really thankful. Well, look, thank you, Peter. It, it's been absolutely lovely talking to you. I've enjoyed it so much. Hopefully we get to speak again soon. And if you are ever, if we ever open up our borders again and you decide to come over to, to Australia, you'll have to come up to Queensland and, and make sure that you let me know and we'll go out for a lunch or something. Wonderful. All so, right, you take care. Yeah, thank you thank again. You. Thank you. And I look forward to catching up again at some time. Anytime. You take the same touch. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
I hope you enjoyed the show. If you do know anybody that you think would enjoy it, please do share it. And you can always find out more at bumpingintocomau Thank you very much for listening.